0: Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. This is Road to Resilience, a podcast about facing adversity. I'm Stephen Calapria. On today's episode, we welcome Alexander Charney, MD, PhD, and associate professor at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, with primary appointments in the Department of Psychiatry and Department of Genetics and Genomic Sciences, as well as secondary appointments in the Departments of Neuroscience and Neurosurgery. He is the director of the Charles Bronfman Institute for Personalized Medicine and serves as executive director of the Blau Center at Mount Sinai, which provides clinical care and original research into mental illness. Dr. Charney has been the lead data scientist on some of the largest genetic studies ever conducted on schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Today, Dr. Charney offers insight into how patients and their families may cope with a diagnosis of schizophrenia and how promising new research offers hope for those who are weathering the storm. We're honored to have Dr. Charney on the show. Dr. Alex Charney, welcome to Road to Resilience. Thanks for having me. Could you please introduce yourself?
1: My name is Alex Charney, I'm a psychiatrist and a geneticist by training. I work at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City, and I am the director of the Charles Brontman Institute for Partialized Medicine here.
0: Now, sir, you study schizophrenia, and you treat patients with schizophrenia. To start us off, what is schizophrenia?
1: Schizophrenia is a mental illness. It is that mental illness that begins in the early 20s of an individual's life. And the symptoms that, that generally bring an individual with schizophrenia to the attention of a mental health care provider such as myself are hallucinations and delusions. Hallucinations are perceptual experiences that are not real. So hearing a voice that is not there or seeing something that is not there. The most common type of hallucination in schizophrenia is an auditory hallucination. So hearing a voice that is not present. And when an individual begins having this experience in the absence of any type of drug or any other thing that could explain it, we become very concerned that this could be the beginning of schizophrenia. Delusion is the other symptom that often is the presenting the symptom of schizophrenia. And the delusion is typically what we call a false fixed belief. And an example of a delusion for illustrative purposes is a patient who believes that she's married to Edgar Allan Poe. Well, it's not possible Edgar Allen Poe did that for 100 years, but you we've know, had patients who, who have that specific delusion. Um, and this is the type of thing you see in schizophrenia, and uh, when hallucinations and delusions are present, we become very concerned.
0: Now, sir, how do we determine what is a delusion or what is a voice in our head and what is just people acting normally. Like we all have an internal monologue. For example, how is it possible to, from a clinical perspective, determine what is a delusion and what is it?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. So let's let's start with hallucinations. Like you said, we all have an internal monologue. You picture yourself reading a book. That's the kind of most what I would say linear internal monologue that we have. Our thoughts are not quite linear. Our thoughts are sort of all over the place, but what we're reading, There's this inner voice in our head that's reading sentences and completing thoughts. And this is different than what a person with schizophrenia experiences. Now, I say this as someone who treats people with schizophrenia. I've never experienced it myself, so I can't say this with 100% certainty. But the general consensus is that an individual who's experiencing auditory hallucinations is hearing a voice that sounds like my voice sounds to you right now. It feels to the person who's experiencing it like it's coming from the outside world. And the individual oftentimes is not able to understand that it's not coming from the outside world. This is very different than if I was to ask you as you're alone with your thoughts, hey, do your thoughts feel like they're coming from the outside world? You'd be you're like, no, no, they're my thoughts, right? They're coming from the side of my head. I understand that. An individual who's suffering from auditory hallucinations cannot make that leap. And then the voices. I feel like part of the outside world. And now with the delusion, it gets even trickier, especially in today's day and age where fake news, what's real, what's not, is sort of on people's minds. In psychiatry, when it comes to delusions, see yeah, I teach my trainees, don't be sucked into that. Things are not always black and white. You know, what's real to one person is not necessarily real to another. If you take this approach to try and diagnose and treat someone with schizophrenia, you're going to fail them as a clinician. Delusion in the setting of a psychotic illness is a clear phenomenon. It's like what if someone's walking around whose arm fell off, it wouldn't be like, oh, is their arm there or is there an arm out there? Their arm's gone, right? Someone who's experienced a delusion in the setting of psychotic illness, yeah, you know, this isn't the type of thing. It's like, oh, well, two people may look at the same situation and interpret it different ways. Delusion in the setting of psychosis is an oftentimes magical belief that a person could jump off a building and fly, things like that. The way we describe what a delusion is certainly sounds like, oh, well, in the real world, people who are healthy have beliefs that to someone else may may seem just straight up wrong. But this is different than what a delusion is, and it is psychotic illness.
0: In the context of schizophrenia specifically, how do you think about resilience?
1: Schizophrenia is a devastating illness. What inspired me to spend my life treating people with this illness and doing research to understand causes of the cell was to develop new treatments was a few things one was just the absolute severity of the condition and starts in your early 20s is when individuals are first diagnosed although even before that when we look back retroactively you can see that the individuals who develop schizophrenia have been suffering from various neuro and psychiatric deficits throughout their life even though they weren't to the point where you could diagnose them with something so it's a, it's a lifelong condition there's no cure the drugs that we have to treat this condition, they're okay. I mean, they do help. And I don't want to underscore the value of medications we do have for when they were developed in the 1950s, they were transformational advance in medicine. Individuals who, before the development of the drugs, they're called antipsychotics. These individuals would have to live in institutions their whole life. The development of these medications allowed those people to live lives in the community. So these medications have had a great impact on individuals with the condition, but they don't work a lot of times, and even when they do work, patients don't want to take them. There hasn't really been major advances in new treatments in 50, 60, 70 years. So it's a condition that's incredibly debilitating for which there are not great treatments but for everyone. And perhaps most striking compared to other conditions is that individuals with schizophrenia are often ostracized by society. And you know, as you can imagine, take... Someone who's got a terrible illness that people generally have empathy for, like like a cancer, so you have this terrible condition that's upended your life, but at least people have empathy for you right schizophrenia so no one has empathy for you, people are scared of you, and oftentimes people think you're violent when you're not. people walk by you on the street thinking you're you're on drugs when you're not it's just a terrible condition and to have schizophrenia and Thrive is amongst the most resilient acts I can think of when I meet an individual who has this condition, but who has somehow found a way to thrive in their life. I'm blown away. It's truly remarkable.
0: Ever thought about enrolling in a clinical trial? The Mount Sinai Health System has over 800 active clinical trials, each geared toward developing new medicines and treatments. Visit sinaiorg slash clinical trials to see if you're eligible. Mount Sinai, we find a way. What is the background of your average schizophrenia patient? Are there certain patients that are far more common than others?
1: Schizophrenia is a condition that is generally accepted to be a constant in its rate of development across time. So... Now, in the modern day, around 1% of people have it, and it's believed that this has always been the case. We don't have any compelling evidence to believe that the proportion of people inside who have schizophrenia changes over time, which is itself a bit puzzling. Across races and ethnicities, this rate seems to be constant. It doesn't seem to clearly affect one race or ethnicity more than another. Males and females generally equally impacted by the condition so the average person with schizophrenia doesn't look any different than the average person in the world at large now that's not to say there aren't risk factors for developing the condition having a family history someone who has the condition or someone who has related conditions like bipolar disorder depression this could be indicative of, of someone who's at higher risk for developing schizophrenia than the average person in society and things like having an history of trauma things that increase your risk for every mental illness. With schizophrenia, there's no exception. There are environmental factors that also impact your risk. But generally speaking, one of the things that's known about schizophrenia is how remarkably consistent the rate of the condition is across time and across cultures and other sociodemographic variables.
0: To the casual mental health observers, schizophrenia would often seem synonymous with psychosis. Is there A great deal of overlap between the two, or would you say that they're more separate conditions?
1: So this is a question about terminology we use in psychiatry, which is a science in itself with incredibly complex history, and which I will not go into too much detail about, but suffice it to say that the term schizophrenia itself, where does it come from? Why do we use it? And just by going down um, that rabbit hole, you could see and how complex the terminology that we use to describe the conditions we treat psychiatry um, is. So, psychosis has become the term that describes a set of symptoms. The most kind of quintessential or archetypal psychotic symptoms are hallucinations and delusions. So, how is it different than schizophrenia? Well, you can think of schizophrenia as the archetypal psychotic illness, but there are ways to experience psychosis that are. Outside the realm of illness, if you take certain drugs, you will experience psychosis, right? If you take a high enough dose of psilocybin, or more commonly known as mushrooms, or if you take a high enough dose of ketamine or PCP, which are similar chemical structures, high doses of cocaine or other amphetamines, you can experience the symptoms of psychosis, delusions, hallucinations. Uh, so, psychosis as a phenomenon is not limited to illnesses like schizophrenia, but When it comes to what is the illness where psychosis is the predominant presenting feature, that's schizophrenia. So that's how you can kind of reconcile the two ideas in your head. They're they're not separate.
0: I also imagine the treatment here may perhaps be difficult because there seems to be a certain measure of subjectivity to it. A disease like cancer, for example, I could presumably look under a microscope and see it. How do you navigate these kinds of subjectivity challenges from a treatment standpoint?
1: There are times when the diagnosis is a bit subjective, but oftentimes it's not. The thing with ps- psychiatrists and observers of psychiatry often are pretty hard on the field for the fact that we don't have what we might call biomarker, you know, a blood test or a test you can look at, cells under a microscope, where we can say, ah, okay, there it is. There's that particular cell. That means this is schizophrenia. Uh, it's true in psychiatry, we don't have those things. But the set of symptoms that comprise schizophrenia, you don't see them in people who aren't suffering from a severe mental illness. Very few people ever experience an auditory hallucination in the way that a person with schizophrenia does or a delusion. So it's usually not that subjective to make a diagnosis. Now, when you start trying to differentiate certain schizophrenia from other psychiatric diagnoses, like bipolar disorder or schizoaffective disorder, now it starts to become a bit subjective. And this is a product of the fact that our diagnostic system is not based on a molecular understanding of how the illness develops, but rather based on decades and centuries of trying to make sense of how different clinical presentations relate to one another. So you can have psychosis and bipolar disorder, you can have psychosis and schizophrenia, and when to diagnose one versus the other is oftentimes a bit subjective, even though the diagnostic system we have tries to make it less subjective, it, it doesn't fully accomplish that goal. So as a provider, what does that mean? Well, it oftentimes doesn't matter because our treatment options are limited. If an individual is presenting to my care with hallucinations and delusions and other possible causes of those symptoms have been ruled out, you know, that this isn't someone who takes any recreational drugs or, or has any other reason to be experiencing these symptoms, so at that point, we conclude this person is suffering from a psychotic illness. And if I call that psychotic illness schizophrenia, if I call it bipolar disorder, if I call it schizoaffective disorder, it doesn't really matter with respect to how I'm going to treat this person. I'm going to treat this person with the only medications we have to treat psychosis, which are the antipsychotics. And I'm not going to make the treatment decision based on whether they check the box for schizophrenia or some other psychotic illness.
0: What are the most common reasons why a given patient might avoid treatment for schizophrenia?
1: Well, the symptoms of schizophrenia oftentimes are permeated by this paranoia. So the paranoia, you can think of it as a symptom itself, but it's also like underlying the other symptoms, like the hallucinations, for example, the voices that the patient's hear They're not just random voices. They can say, hey, how you doing? Oftentimes the voices are, don't trust that person. They're out to get you what's in that car, someone sitting in that car, they're, they're watching you. The hallucinations, the delusions are often permeated by this paranoia of extreme severity. We've all experienced paranoia, but not this level of paranoia. And that will often prevent them from seeking care because they may believe that the doctors are trying to poison them. And we're giving them medications that oftentimes cause up side effects. So when they do take the medications, it just confirms that because it is like, it's not a poison, but it causes, causes things that are pleasant, like weight gain, the symptoms of Parkinson's disease that the, the medications means for schizophrenia cause those. So it's the paranoia itself can be a major barrier to seeking care. And the side effects of the drugs is another one. The earlier drugs that we have cause symptoms of Parkinson's disease. The more recent ones we have cause extreme weight gain. These are both really bad. And so it's kind of like, pick your poison. Newer drugs are, are getting better at, at minimizing side effects, but they just don't want to gain 30 pounds. So a young person who's self-conscious about their appearance, right? People who see this running are no different than anyone else. You know, they, they want to look good, right? So who wants to take a medication that's going to make them just gain a lot of weight? Uh, so the side effects of the medications are another another big barrier. And I'd say those are the big ones. The paranoia, the side effects of the medication, And then there's other barriers to mental health care that everyone faces. It's not always easy to get connected. But generally speaking, when a person seeks care of schizophrenia, they will be able to get it. It's a condition that is taken very seriously.
0: Now, this being a psychotic illness and therefore affecting patients on a behavioral level, how do you foster a therapeutic alliance with individuals diagnosed with schizophrenia to support their resilience going through treatment?
1: Sometimes it's tough. I work primarily in the emergency room as a clinician. I do a lot. Most of my time I spend doing research on these illnesses, but I do treat patients as well. When I do, I work in the emergency room, and the reason is because often that's where you'll, as a clinician, get to encounter individuals with schizophrenia most frequently. The medications, a lot of patients don't want to take them, and over time they will stop. Actually, some estimates are that around 75% of patients will stop the medication over time. Whether this is due to side effects or whether this is due to symptoms of the illness itself that the medications don't treat, which include like behavioral disorganization, the inability to behave in a way that is conducive to functioning in society, like taking your medications every day. And that's kind of up for discussion, but what's out for discussion is that majority of patients who are prescribed medications will stop taking them over time. So as the clinician in the emergency room Oftentimes, I'm faced with, in many ways, a a terrible decision where I have to treat patients against their will, and I'm the bad guy, and that's something I struggle with, but it's necessary. So sometimes it's not possible to form a therapeutic alliance for that reason, and it's one of the darker sides of of being a clinician who focuses on treating this particular condition. On the other hand, there are often, just like any other medical condition, that patients who have successful treatment, and they're very grateful to their clinician, and that's one of the best things about being a doctor is when that happens and you get to have that joint experience with your patient. So it's tough, and it varies from patient to patient. And again, there's not one size fits all solution to developing that alliance with an individual that gets to crack when you're responsible for their medical treatment.
0: When you or your family are diagnosed with cancer, you want the best and most advanced care at Mount Sinai's Cancer Centers of Excellence multidisciplinary experts from oncologists to researchers create a team dedicated to you. They develop advanced diagnostic and treatment options while giving compassionate care in a welcoming environment. Learn more about Mount Sinai Tish Cancer Center at mountsinai.org cancer. We find a way Mount Sinai. We also spoke on our most recent episode about the stigma attached to addiction coming forward about one's addiction seeking treatment about one's addiction and you began by talking about the just incredible pressures that are on your patient population when it comes to judgment that they may receive from people could you talk a little bit about the interpersonal and societal stigma surrounding schizophrenia and how that may serve as a barrier to treatment
1: and to patient resilience it's like substance abuse. There's a med stigma around schizophrenia. It's different in some ways, I think, and not more or less severe, just different. With substance abuse, most people know someone personally who has suffered from substance abuse, so it's a bit easier to identify with. And most people in their everyday life, you know, there's something that they do more than they would like to do. Whether that's they watch too much TV or they don't exercise enough. So there's elements of I think just being able to identify with someone who has an illness like substance abuse, you know, more so than an illness like schizophrenia, which for your average person is oftentimes a mystery is the one it even is. The term itself people have likely heard before, but like the term bipolar disorder, they've probably heard it used in a way that is not a reflection of what it means in psychiatry. So the term schizophrenia for whatever reason or schizophrenic has made it into the everyday lingo. Has this kind of meaning all over the place, or whatever? And it was just so very different than what it means in psychiatry, where it's got this, it's this specific condition that you know, If you ask the average person on the street, "Have you ever heard of schizophrenia?" I say yes. Did you know schizophrenia is generally considered like the most severe mental illness you could have? They'd probably be like, "No, I didn't realize that." So. There's this element of, like, not even knowing what it is. Now, does that make it more or less stigmatized? I don't know. It, it makes it harder to identify with if we don't even know what something is. So that there's this barrier to identify and have empathy for someone with schizophrenia. An individual needs to learn a bit first. What is this thing? What is this condition? Kind of educate themselves, and, and that's a barrier to overcoming the stigma of schizophrenia. And even when you're treated effectively, people who have schizophrenia they're still going to hear voices often that aren't there. And that's just so hard to identify with when you've never experienced it. I think about this all the time and how I've never experienced that. So like no matter how many patients I treat who have this condition, no there are how many patients I've seen who are hearing voices right in front of me and I could see it because they're talking back to the voice and as if I'm not even in the room I don't have an experience of myself. So there's just this barrier to me really being able to understand what they're going through. And I think that's tough for the, for the patient.
0: Related to the stigma, you also talked about how this patient population is viewed as violent, whereas the statistics show us that the vast majority of folks suffering from mental illness are not violent. How does that affect a patient's given course of treatment and how likely they are to seek treatment themselves?
1: When a person's been labeled as violent, it's a label that sticks with them in the medical record, unfortunately. Because sometimes patients are violent and not necessarily schizophrenic patients, but in psychiatry, um, you know, when you're working in lots inpatient units with people who are severely mentally ill, you are going to encounter violent behavior. And so it's important for clinicians to convey that information to one another so that the nurses and that patient, patient care providers, they're called PCAs, they're individuals who work with the nurses are right next to the patients, oftentimes they're kind of the closest to the patient, they need to be safe. They need to know if a person has a tendency to be violent. So that label does stick with the patient, and sometimes it's unfair because we can't really trace back what well, was this person actually violent. So are they really violent? You know, they're kind of having this label in their medical record as having been violent before, but none of us have ever seen it. So it does create kind of a situation where providers are judging the patient before they've even gotten to know them. And I imagine this is tough for patients. You know, I can't say I, I have talked about this much with patients specifically, but I would imagine that this is something that's tough. It's a tough label to shape. But like you said, most people who have this condition are never violent. They're loving and they have funny people who are just some of the most interesting individuals you'll ever meet. have a totally different way of experiencing and looking at the world. And uh, it's a shame that more people don't, Know someone with schizophrenia in their life because working with people with schizophrenia has been a defining feature in my life. These people are, are so interesting and have so much to offer the world.
0: There seems to be a great deal of hope in this area for individual patients and for this population at large. One of those reasons for hope is that Dr. Alex Charney is conducting some original research into schizophrenia right here at Mount Sinai. Could you tell us a little bit about
1: it? Sure. So, w- w- one of the reasons I was inspired to become an expert in schizophrenia was because when you see this condition, as a medical doctor, you, you see every disease there is, and you know, learn all the treatments, options, and so on and so forth. And schizophrenia is one of those conditions when you see it, it's an obvious diagnosis and someone who is hearing voices in their head is talking back to those voices, out, one side of conversation, believes things that are just you know, out, out of this world, not true, and yeah, so severe delusions, it's a very obvious condition. You don't need to be trained for many years to be able to recognize it, make the diagnosis. And that always struck me as very different from our understanding of the illness. So here's something that it's so striking we see someone with the condition, yet our understanding of it is so poor. So it seemed like here, this seems like opportunity, that there must be an answer. But what is happening here in the brain that is causing this very severe condition? It can't be so subtle when the condition itself is not subtle. A small child can recognize that there's something wrong with an individual who's talking to himself walking down the street. And this continues to baffle me. Now, so what have we learned about schizophrenia? Well, for a long time, we thought that the mechanism of the disease had to be related to the mechanism by which the medications we have are able to treat this disease. Like I said, the medications that we have, the antipsychotics, they work. They make hallucinations go away in some cases. They don't cure the illness, but when the patient's taking the medications, those hallucinations will be buried down. So we know how these medications work. They work through uh, antagonism at this one receptor called the dopamine receptor. So for many years, it was assumed that whatever's happening schizophrenia is related to the dopamine receptor. Well, we now know that's not the case. Okay. Well, that's one step in the right direction. What do we know? We know that schizophrenia is a highly genetic condition. The mechanisms by which your genes, increase your risk for schizophrenia, remains poorly understood, but we know that there are thousands of genes involved and that for some patients, there could be one gene that is the primary driver of the illness. For many patients, that's not the case, but for some patients it is. So we have learned quite a bit. And the challenge now is, well, how do we take this knowledge of the genetics of schizophrenia and turn that into new treatments? And that's something we're working hard on here in Mount Sinai and in the Plough Center is the name of the, the center where this work is happening. And our approach is to use similar technology to the COVID vaccine, which is delivering a gene in what are called lipid nanoparticles. And in this case, to set up delivering a gene that results in your body's making antibodies against COVID, which is how a COVID vaccine works, here we're going to deliver a gene that will increase the brain activity in a specific way that we think will treat schizophrenia based on what we've learned about the genetics in this condition over the last 15 years. So this work is ongoing, and we hope to start treating patients with this experimental type of medication within the next one to two years. And, And there's no guarantees that it will work, but this is the type of work that is necessary in order to move the field forward.
0: And it is certainly something that would provide hope to a great many patients and their families. While patients are in treatment, until your research is officially put into practice, what coping mechanisms or strategies do individuals with schizophrenia often find most helpful in guiding them through their treatments?
1: Well, when a family is involved, it really makes a big difference in the overall well-being of the person who has schizophrenia. At the beginning, when an individual first gets their diagnosis, there's usually family who's involved because the people are young and the parents are often still involved in their life, siblings or someone in the family. But then what happens is over time, just due to the nature of this illness, patients not only become ostracized by society, but oftentimes fall out with their own family. And when that happens, you know, it's 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 tough. It's, you never want to see a patient who kind of winds up alone, oftentimes homeless and and trying to get by so when a family is able to stay in the patient's life despite everything which is tough it's tough for, for a lot of you know speak with a lot of family members at events you know, in the community and just to hear about how difficult it is to remain involved after decades and decades of trying to help their family member through the illness unsuccessfully but when a family does stay involved it's oftentimes the most powerful thing that can be done for the patient in terms of their long-term outcome for patients who don't have that there's other programs in the community that could be very helpful. Having an ACT team, ACT, I don't remember exactly what that stands for, is, is one example of that where in, in New York City, individuals can be so assigned a caseworker, a social worker, a psychiatrist, a nurse that all work as one team and meet the patient in the community rather than the patient having to come into the doctor's office. So this is a oftentimes a powerful uh, strategy for, for helping people with schizophrenia cope with their condition over time. So there are a lot of programs in the community as well as having family in the, in the patient's life. And together, hope is not lost for someone with schizophrenia. You can have schizophrenia and have a great life. It takes resilience. It takes commitment to your care, taking your meds, trying to overcome the condition, just like people try and overcome any other condition. So patients who get this diagnosis and, and family members of people who have this diagnosis, it shouldn't feel like all hope is lost because it's not.
0: It's interesting that you would touch on social support. Social support, family, friends, people who care about you seems like such a ubiquitous and helpful thing in almost any situation that is prescribed uh, to a certain degree by professionals like yourself, that you are so much stronger regardless of what it is that you're going through if you feel and know that other people are there and have your back.
1: I couldn't agree more. Yeah, humans are, are social animals. We're not built to deal with the problems that life throws at us on our own. We can try and we'll experience some success. But ultimately, we all need somebody in our lives to help us, help us cope, whether it's someone in your family, whether it's a friend, whether it's a doctor, whoever it is. We all need support. We can't handle the problems that we have on our own. And schizophrenia is no exception to that.
0: Now, how do you collaborate with other mental health professionals and interdisciplinary teams to address both the clinical symptoms and the resilience of individuals with schizophrenia?
1: So as a psychiatrist, you're not necessarily going to be the most impactful person in the, in the life uh, of an individual with schizophrenia. You're going to be the source of their medication, which is an important role. But you're not necessarily going to be the one who's like in the community, meeting the patient where they're at day to day. Yeah, oftentimes, this is a caseworker or a social worker or a traveling nurse who is really in the community with the patient. And then psychiatrists, it may be due to, to so-called visits. And yeah, but oftentimes, you're seeing the patient in a doctor's office or in a hospital, like as the case with me in the emergency room. And so collaboration is critical. And in the emergency room, it's a totally collaborative environment. So when I'm working a shift, I show up at 8 p.m., I work until the next morning at 8 a.m., and while I'm there, my role is to shepherd patients into the emergency room, identify what's the problem, and help formulate a plan on what should happen next. What happens next is not something I can do on my own. Oftentimes, we need to find a, a, a place for the patient to go. If they don't have a home, the social workers in the emergency room are taking the lead on that. And we need to oftentimes connect with people in the patient's life, calling family members you know, from oftentimes I haven't seen the patient in years. This is something that's done with the senior doctors, the more junior doctors, students who are working in the emergency room is a problem we all tackle together. And then, of course, there's the delivering of medications in the emergency room to the patient, and this is something that the nurse takes the lead on. So even just in that one environment of care, it's a totally collaborative experience as the provider, and this is the case wherever the patient is being treated, and it always takes a tea to treat someone who has schizophrenia.
0: Now, to stick with the social component, resilience in battling schizophrenia, as you've touched upon, doesn't just fall on patients, but it also falls on their families and loved ones. What do those conversations with those folks look like? The the struggle that those closest to the patient have to go through themselves?
1: So it depends on the setting, where I'm interacting with a family member of someone who has a condition. If it's The first time someone has been diagnosed with the condition, we call this the first break. My role there is to provide education of what's going to happen, what to expect in the years ahead, the days ahead, the months ahead, so that the family member can get prepared. They'll get overwhelmed, but they can get prepared for how their life is going to change. Other times, I'll be at a community event and I'm interacting with a family member who's decades into that process, so no longer trying to prepare them for what's to come. Now they're the expert, right They know what's there. they're teaching me about their experience, and I'm there to listen, and I'm there to reassure them that there are people like me who are working all the time trying to find an answer. doesn't mean we'll find one, but they can at least rest assured that there are people who are trying It's not something that's being ignored. It's not something that the government doesn't fund right Schizophrenic research is well funded This is a major societal problem that a lot of people are really working hard and trying to solve, so they can at least rest assured that that's happening even if they don't see. The outcomes of that day to day and some patients find solace in that other times it's really just i'm there to just you know just tell them keep at it you know don't give up just offer them some words of encouragement to you know no matter how hard it gets try and stay there for their loved one and continue to be a pillar of support for them in whatever way they can despite how hard that is oftentimes and i don't know if that's helpful sometimes it is sometimes it isn't other times that conversation takes on more of an exchange of information type of thing where patients have a loved one with an illness for many years, and they've heard about some new thing in the news. So maybe it's a new treatment or a new study, or they um, have some new option that they think we help their loved one, and they ask me about it, and I try and get them connected to the right source of information to answer their questions. Uh, so the nature of that discussion can take on many shapes depending on the context.
0: Widening the social scope further, how do you promote community integration for individuals with schizophrenia, and how would you say that that contributes to their resilience?
1: So there are programs to help people with uh, with schizophrenia get back into the workforce. These are effective and important. I'd say overall, there's not enough work being done in that space to connect individuals who have schizophrenia to the rest of society to teach people in society, like, what is schizophrenia? Why is it that your average person in our society, they know what Alzheimer's disease is? Oh, a disease you get old and you lose your memory. They know what depression is. It's that condition where you feel sad. They know what cancer is. But why doesn't anyone know what schizophrenia is, right? Like So part of this is, is an education thing. I don't have a good answer. I like, why is it that there's just, like, such poor kind of education about this particular condition in society, even though it's a very common condition that's been around forever? And I think that's a major barrier to better integration of individuals who have this illness into society. And we're working on trying to overcome that in our in our little way here in New York City, hosting events that bring people with schizophrenia together with other people in the community, and and I think more activities like that. You know, why is it? There's always walks for breast cancer, but there's never a walk for schizophrenia, right? a walk for psychosis, things like that. We need to make schizophrenia more of an understood and accepted condition out there in the world. And then I think that that hopefully would help people who have the condition feeling more accepted by their community.
0: Another very common aspect of resilience is the sense of meaning and purpose, providing a given patient with the reason to keep going, to keep fighting, to to keep showing up to treatment. Is that something that you focus on in your treatment and in your research?
1: Me personally, I'm, like I said, I work in the emergency room, so I, I don't oftentimes have the luxury of, of being able to have discussions like that with my patients. I'm, I'm more helping them through an immediate crisis, trying to figure out where to go next. But yes, when, when you're working with patients in the community in a, in a less hectic setting, and you're able to kind of really talk about what's going on in their life, as is the case when we're working with patients in a research setting, we can try and find what drives you. It's probably no different than anyone else in that way. How would I help someone who doesn't ask it to find you out? recognize well, what are what are the things that drive them what make them want to get out of bed in the morning you know what, what are the things they feel passionate about and how can i help guide them towards turning those passions into either hobbies or careers so that's kind of the overall strategy i take with the who have schizophrenia like i said hope is not lost in any way it's an illness it's lifelong it's not going away so it's accepting those realities but then recognizing this illness is not my destiny and It's I can have a fulfilling life in spite of it. It's not going to be easy, but it's it can be done. There are many examples to point to individuals who have had the condition and have led inspiring lives. And patients being made aware of those could sometimes help. The person people maybe are most familiar with is the Nobel Prize winner John Nash, who was a mathematician. an economist that had schizophrenia. Yeah, you know, so there are examples of people who have who have done exceptional things with their life despite their illness.
0: If someone was listening to our show and they recognize in themselves or in a loved one the symptoms of schizophrenia, what should they do?
1: Go to the emergency room, is the short answer. New onset schizophrenia is a psychiatric emergency. Doesn't mean we are going to make it to the hospital or what what have you, but for someone who's not sure who to call, not sure what to do, thinks their loved one might have schizophrenia, it's very simple. Bring them to the emergency room, call 911. It is considered a psychiatric emergency. And what happens is they're brought to the emergency room. Most people don't know there's a psychiatric emergency room. That's usually part of the main emergency room. They generally don't see it, but we're there. Uh, And when someone is brought into the main emergency room and they tell the person at the front desk, my loved one is experiencing symptoms that I think are schizophrenia or they're acting strange and we don't know what to do, they'll connect them to us in the psychiatric emergency room and we'll take it from there. Well,
0: doctor, that was it for my questions. Was there anything else you wanted to say?
1: Nope. Just thank you for shining a light on schizophrenia and the individuals who have this condition who are amongst the most resilient people that you'll ever meet.
0: Dr. Alex Charney, thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you. Dr. Alexander Charney is an associate professor in the Departments of Psychiatry and Genetics and Genomic Sciences at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He also serves as the director of the Charles Bronfman Institute for Personalized Medicine and as the executive director of the Blau Center, which aims to increase understanding and research of serious mental illness, primarily schizophrenia, and related disorders. That's all for this episode of Road to Resilience. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform Road to Resilience is a production of the Mount Sinai Health System. It's produced by me, Stephen Coabria, and our executive producer, Lucia Lee. From all of us here at Mount Sinai, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.